Hello, this is the Redheaded Preacher hailing from St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie, Illinois on October 31st, 2021. It's Reformation Sunday as well as Halloween. I'm going to talk about Reformation, not really about Halloween, though we will pray in the pastoral prayers for safe Halloween. Um, this message is based on scriptures from Ruth and the letter to the Hebrews and the gospel according to Mark. Uh, the title of the sermon is Reformation Roots. And um, I hope you enjoy it. And towards that end, that you enjoy it spiritually, uh, please join me in the spirit of prayer. God of history and God of mystery. God of many, many years ago and so far away, and yet our God here and now. We humbly ask your blessing on the reading and hearing of the scriptures and on the preaching and listening to the message. Use your spirit to speak to us what you would have us hear and think about and take away. In the name of Christ, the word made flesh, we pray. Amen. And now, Beth Lanford, our lector with the scriptures. A famous Bible story we do not hear often in worship. That is our first reading this morning. We welcome to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Emiliac, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Emliah, the, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilian also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb 
that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return, to your, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. This one's a reading from Ruth. Our epistle lesson once again comes from the letter of the Hebrews, uh, chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. The theme of contrasting the old sacrifices to the one made by Jesus on Calvary continues. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies those who have been defiled, so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. This ends the reading of the This morning it is Mark chapter 12, verses 28-34. Jesus has been answering questions from the Sadducees, and our story picks up there. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. Here ends the reading of the gospel and the scriptures for today's service. Thanks be to God for this, the word of the life of God, for the life of the people of God. Some nights ago this week, I happened to catch American historian John Meacham on television. He was talking about praying the Lord's Prayer as a kid in Catholic school chapel, and every day staring at the same floor tiles, five days a week, eight years. He still can picture those sanctuary floor tiles, he said, whenever he prays the Lord's Prayer while commenting that he is not Roman Catholic. So I thought about a memory like that and private religious schools holding chapel, the planting of seeds in church and elsewhere of faith. And as I worked on today's sermon, I wondered, you know, how much longer memories like his would be created in our society? I do not mean that I think the church may disappear in the next 50 to 100 years. I believe Jesus when he told Simon Peter in Matthew 16, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The church, the people and the Holy Spirit who make up the church in every generation will survive. The church shall always be. How it works, what it will look like, and where it will be engaged in mission changes over time. One great transformation of the church was what we call the Protestant Reformation. You'll remember some of the changes of that 16th century, which endure to this day, which may not have started right away, but some cases evolved quickly. Uh, clergy can marry and have families. Uh, there are different beliefs about how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. Protestant Christians do not have a pope, we, for centuries and centuries, have had Bibles and worship in the language of the people. The preached word, capital W, is more central to our worship than the sacrament of communion. Over the centuries, women have become clergy, then gay men in more progressive de denominations, and move beyond gay and straight, male and female, both in clergy and membership. Again, not in all churches, nor even in all mainline churches. And 2021, is not the church reforming in some ways now? Are there not transitions happening around us and within the churches, altering what church will look like and be like in the not-too-distant future? I mean, we know what changes COVID hath wrought in the, over the past 18 months plus, and that a whole sermon could be lifted up on those transitions that started then, 
and have an impact now and in the future alone. But there were parad some paradigms were shifting before COVID hit. Generational changes affecting worship content and styles, pluralism, technology, mobility, and descending denominational influence or affiliation all play and played a part. Concentrations of money due to demographic changes made an impact and make an impact. In some conversations, I will hear about this or that group of believers and maybe, maybe, you know, maybe some, maybe believers, they're exploring. They gather somewhere like a bar or a friend's apartment on a rotation basis that's scheduled or wherever they can gather. They engage in some sharing and maybe guided Q&A with a definite spiritual bent, perhaps tied to scripture. And I'm told this is how the 20-somethings or older in some places like to, are, and are willing to do church today. And part of me, when I first, you know, when I first was exposed to that, I wondered to myself, is this church? All while I need to know, I need to be open-minded about that which I know little, but which seem to be responses of a calling by the Holy Spirit. I want to believe that whatever God holds in store for the future churches of Western society, particularly those of Protestant orientation, there will remain some Reformation roots growing up to and through these new displays of assembling and reaching out Christianity. Let's explore. Any reformed or reforming version of our faith community and faith community online will exist in something that is also affecting our being and our mission. That is our larger environment particularly the agnosticism, uh, atheism, religious relativism, and apathy, which are healthy and active in some places today. Our faith communities right now, and those in, say, 30 years, will, find, will both find this reality a challenge and, I hope, an opportunity. I do not have the time to shine light on the whys and whens and wheres and hows of this phenomenon. I know Darwinism is having its effect, unchecked by faith insights, because so few young people are even in faith communities, it seems, Christian or otherwise. The origin of the species converted my brother-in-law, who was never of a religious spirit anyway, to non-belief, and he is in good company. And I do mean good company. Um, as one person of faith said on the radio, I know atheists who are better Christians than some of the Christians I know. Because, he explained, they are kinder, more generous, more committed to the good of their communities and planet, and less judgmental, materialistic, or self-righteous. I think you and I understand that one branch of our faith, or more than one branch, has been perceived and experienced by so many as being closed-minded, fearful, judgmental to the point of excluding LGBTQ plus sons and daughters from the church, unresponsive to the women's pleas for full leadership authority within their church, and in some regions are captured by a spirit, small s, which knows little of Jesus' real teaching, but appreciates nationalism, anti-intellectualism, keeping their comfort zone of being one color in their churches and more. There is some 
straining out of a gnat while swallowing a camel, to, you, to borrow a phrase. They let their unacknowledged, unacknowledged fear of the other dictate the extent of their compassion, outreach, and desire to reach out with love. Now churches now and down the road, down the expressway of time, because they can be going fast, and maybe even over the speed limit, churches now and down the expressway of time do and will face this environment. The early church had to face prejudice, ignorance, bad press from others, and animosity, in their case, aimed at them. But the church still grew while it was being attacked and killed hither and yon and throughout the Roman Empire, while it was being attacked with the empire's approval, and not always constantly from, with national focus, but sometimes and often just in certain parts where they decided, let's get those Christians. And yet it grew. Now, how did it grow? I mentioned in a sermon around a month ago or so that uh, the deaths of Christian martyrs drew people to Jesus. The fact that people cared enough about this Christ and about their faith to undergo persecution and sometimes torture or death without surrender. Well, that means they've really got something powerful in their lives. Our early forebears were willing to go through anything but curse Christ or give up the faith. And that touched, amazed, and changed people. So the church grew that way. But the church also grew over time because our forebears were kind to their neighbors without motive. They brought the Jewish concept of mercy to their lives and to the lives of their communities. Mercy which was disdained by the Roman culture. It was considered a sign of weakness. Mercy was not a positive value then. And now Christians and their mercy kindness and service to others in need is not restrictive to our faith. But Jesus and the Spirit told the disciples to tell others about the faith, whereas Judaism was not about converting folks. Our spiritual ancestors helped to heal, comfort, teach, and show mercy or justice to non-Christians around them, and that also led to the growth of the faith over time. Divorces diminished over time in that liberal Roman society when it came to divorce because of Jesus' largely conservative words about divorce, adultery, and remarriage. In that setting, then, women in the church communities found economic security under the canopy of that teaching. It wasn't so easy to divorce someone. There was not the willingness with the easiness combined. Families became more stable as a result, and that was attractive to the surrounding culture as well, the early church. Now this witness and this service is our calling beyond these walls today, too, maybe more so in an increasingly disconnected from Christian faith society though we understand our times are different. We're not living in the Roman Empire and those values anymore. But this witness and service also grow from Reformation roots of sola gratia, sola scriptura, and sola fide. Sola scriptura, you may know, means by scripture alone. It, with the others, became the unofficial slogans of the Reformation. Sola scriptura is a theological doctrine held by some Protestant denominations 
that posits the Christian scriptures as the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice. Scola Scriptura is a formal principle of a lot of Protestant denominations, one of the five sole or solae, I really don't know how to pronounce Latin too well. Uh, it was a foundational principle of the Protestant Reformation held by many of those who started it, who taught the authentication of Scripture is governed by the discernible excellence of the text as well as the personal witness of the Holy Spirit to the heart of each one. Now some evangelical and Baptist denominations state the doctrine of sola scriptura is, they state it more strongly, scripture is self-authenticating, clear to the rational reader, is its own interpreter, scripture interprets scripture, and sufficient of itself to be the final authority of Christian doctrine. By the way, if you're wondering, sole, what? And I learned this this week in sermon preparation. The other five sole, well, they're sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura, and also solus Christus and soli deo gloria. At its best, sola scriptura is an emphasis on scripture alone as our top authority for Christian faith and practice. At its worst, it is a rigid, fundamentalistic, self-affirming master allowing no other authorities as legitimate when it comes to how we are interpret and how we are to live. God is still speaking. The Protestant Reformation turned to the centrality of God's word when it came to worship and theology. Pulpits are central in the chancel in many Reformed churches. I grew up in a church, and many of you have been in churches, and you grew up, the pulpit was in the middle, and that was it. This is called a split chancel. There's a lectern and there's a pulpit. I didn't grow up with that, and a lot of you didn't either, or you're familiar. That's because it's the architecture of theology. The word is central, so the pulpit is in the middle. Jesus, in our gospel reading, also affirmed the foundation of Jewish and Christian belief with his twist on making the two commandments on a par with each other. Love God with all you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. The authoritative word there is love. Love of God, of neighbor, of self, and as Jesus added, of enemy. The early church showed love to their enemies, to their neighbors, to their persecutors, and to those in need of help or in need of mercy. We do what we can today to show love also. Unique and vital among those who are, um, I might have lost my place here, uh, okay, and in a reforming church transitioning into the next part of this century, unique and vital among those of struggling faith or apathetics or distrusters, we follow the sola scriptura of prioritizing love. Love for of God, love for God, love of God, love of neighbors, persons in need, the least of these, Matthew 25, and persons who are victims of war, oppression, poverty, greed, and, and much more. Sola Scriptura is a reformation bringing the present and future church to find its life in centering on and finding its calling in the word of love and all that flows from that. Sola gratia means by grace alone. For you and I are saved, not only for heaven and eternity, but also from the worst parts of ourselves and our histories. 
It is a deliverance. It is a new life for which ultimately we thank God. God is the one we praise. God's grace made it possible. In love, God does, us, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Could not do. And Christ did that. One definition of grace, it's not new, but I stick with it, is unmerited love. Grace, by definition, is a gift. Something we do not earn, create, or deserve. As I think I recently quoted, uh, like my old buddy Earl from volunteer preaching at Cook County Jail, uh, Earl used to say that, and sometimes we'll experience, that it's all God, man. It's all God. We're indebted to God, to God's grace. Sola Gratia reminds us of our dependence on this God of love and power, who also, by the word, is also a God of warning, requiring, teaching, healing, self-giving, and resurrection. Sola Gratia, in no form of church, exists without it, ever. And often it is Sola Scriptura where we learn of it. I remember reading about one guy, he didn't believe, but he was open enough. He read the gospel according to Mark and closed it, believing. This is by reading Mark. Sola fide, by faith alone. By faith alone and not by works, we receive the grace of God. By faith, we acknowledge the Lord as the source of such grace. A foundation of faith is also needful for churches reformed and reforming. By faith alone we follow Jesus into futures we know not and have confidence in this love and in this grace. We are saved by faith alone, but as a professor at seminary said, the faith which saves is never alone, meaning at least it is accompanied by good works of love inspired by the word of love, peace and justice. Churches reformed, and to be reforming soon, who have roots in sola fide, trust God enough to care for the church, capital C, as it steps out of its buildings, perhaps, and maybe moves into other gathering and staffing arrangements. Faith empowers congregations to believe that giving up a cherished practice, event, or item could result in something even better coming along, which otherwise could not. Faith looks for that proverbial open window when the popular door is closed. Faith remembers that the faithfulness of the Lord in the past and present, and humbly, then humbly finds reason to expect God to continue being faithful when the church reforms and into a new congregation perhaps, evolves into that. Sola fide can bring inspiration and liberation. It's a Reformation root which, like the others, churches need. They needed it in the past, need now, and will need decades down the line, regardless of where a new Reformation of Protestant Christianity and community take us. Sola Scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide. Amen. Do all the good you can, by all the means that you can, in all the ways that you can, at all the times that you can, to all the people that you can, as long as ever you can. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts 
and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be upon you, remain with you, always. Amen. Thank you.